business seems to take longer than you might have thought. In, in my case, I was going to wake up rather quickly and then get on with my life. In, uh, in the old days, this was something I was going to do with great intensity for, you know, a short month. I gave me gave myself about three months, and then, you know, I get something sorted, and then basically live my life and continue continue with my plans. As it looks, it takes a little longer. The project is unfinished, and I'm still at it, 35 years on. Um, So as you also have probably noticed, meditation is messy business. And like with all messy business, it's necessary that in the face of all messiness, we make an effort to be clear and to be respectful with the bits we don't understand, to be both curious, courageous and Tolerant for not understanding things. That's different than ignorance. Tolerant for not understanding things and ignorant are two very different things. Ignorance, there's many different dimensions. I'm happy to talk about these on another occasion. So the mind, the citta, uh, as early Buddhist tradition refers to uh, this process, is complex and it is um, not, it is capricious, it is at the same time miraculous. That mind is capable of a variety of movements. On one level, and without wanting to go into the Abhidharma, we could say that there are three fundamental layers of mind functions. The very first mind function is um, fundamental sensory sensitivity. It is through Buddhist traditions across the board uh, call mind. Basically, we can pick up things. Anyways, the mind is uh, the crossroad of our senses, as the poet Rilke says. Senses, of which there are five outer ones, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, touching. And there is a sixth sense, mano or manas, as the mind base, which is amongst other things also a sense organ. So what the smell is to the nose, what the taste is to the tongue, uh, thought, image, concept, are the objects of the mind, of the mind as a sense base, manas. Now, although some of the Abhidharma teachings try to identify the citta with manas, this is not actually very accurate if you look at how the term citta is used in the early Buddhist teaching. The Buddha makes quite some distinctions, although he does not neatly define that citta, 
it becomes very obvious how he uses this term if you just read and keep seeing the usage of the term. Sometimes we do understand things not by definition uh, or by description, but we do understand things by looking how they perform, isn't it? This. That's not just true for Buddhist contemplative practice, it's also true for psychology. If you want to know about yourself, you can obviously scrutinize your beliefs. That's one way of getting to know you. You can sample your views, your opinions, your papancha, your ideologies. Uh, that's one way. You, know, so, uh, you can uh, look at how you feel. So you can get to know yourself by getting to know how you feel about things. And maybe the most dramatic way of understanding oneself is just to investigate one's behavior. These three things, they're not necessarily very con congruent. You know, I can have a particular opinion. Uh, I can subscribe to a particular ideology. I can have feelings about this, and yet what I do may be widely, widely divergent from this. Yeah? So sometimes, if you're not sure what something is, just look how you relate to it. Study your relationship. So if we apply that principle to um, an understanding of the notion of citta, what we translate as mind or heart, a dimension of our experience in which the intellect and the heart are not yet separated. If we're trying to look at how this notion is used in early Buddhist teaching, then the Buddha always uses this term when it's about purifying something, cultivating something, developing something. Later Buddhist traditions, the more analytic attempts, have tried to uh, redefine the citta, make it just a momentary snapshot of the state of mind, and trying to convince us that all states completely disappear before new ones arise, um, which is an interesting theory. Um, I see some advantages of that theory, but I also see some disadvantages. If I look at the usage of the uh, earliest layer of Pali, discourses, then it seems to me that that citta has a quality of a continuum. It is the seat of my experience. If I'm asked how I do, this is where I go. So let us go back and look at some of its functions. First one, sensory sensitivity, picking up things. That's easy enough. Second big function of the citta is um, producing sankharas. In other words, processing sensory input and responding or reacting to that sensory input. In other, I'm starting to develop likes or dislikes. I'm starting to um, form types of intentionality. Crucial term. The Buddha is very clear that our experience is utterly dynamic and the most formative force in there is what he calls volition. Yeah. Volition essentially boils down to conscious forms of intention and unconscious forms of intention. As we know, sometimes we want things without admitting to ourselves that we want them. Yeah. 
we credit Mr. Freud to have brought that to daylight in the most clear form, that the most sober and honest introspective attempt sometimes does not tell me what I want. And yet, if I look at my behavior, my behavior often shows me what I want. It shows me where I put my chips. It shows me what I'm afraid of. So the second layer of the citta, the production of sankharas, is a lot about conditioning. It is about creating a world, creating a self, operating in a world, so that this world preferably gives me what I like and spares me what I don't like. That has a lot to do with um, learning to use my senses, learning relational skills, and then learning to express myself so that this world preferably gives me answers I like uh, and becomes to be a place in which I am, according to my own self-understanding, successful, um, independent, effective. Creating forms of intentionality touches all aspects of my functioning. It touches where my attention goes. It touches how I perceive the world and myself. It touches how I relate to others. Um, it touches most powerfully attention itself. So intentionality underpins all of my experience. Consciousness is intentional. This is important to understand. Things don't just happen. One of the most stupid things I've ever heard is called shit happens. Yeah? And it basically means stuff just happens and nobody has done anything. I know this wasn't the idea for the phrase. The idea was to say basically, you know, don't sweat the small stuff. Look, bad things happen and we move on. But in some way, the denial of causality, the denial of conditionality, is one of the crucial uh, criticisms of the Buddha in the religions and practices of his day. Yeah. That is a very fundamental piece we need to understand. All Buddhist mind training hinges on the premise that intentionality can be made conscious and that it can be acknowledged, that it can be um, discerned as to, as to whether it is wholesome or unwholesome and it can be affirmed if it is deemed wholesome and it can be weakened or at least not fed when it is deemed unwholesome. Uh, more complicated things are also possible, transformation is possible, uh, or calling into being, as you remember that word bhavana from a few days ago, bringing something to life that isn't there yet. All these dimensions of training have to do with intentionality and our understanding of this intentionality. So, we have sensory processing, we have response to sensory processes on the second level of citta, and on the third level of citta we have a miraculous function that is about understanding. So the citta's third big function is understanding. It is capable of understanding. It is capable of profoundly 
seeing and penetrating something. The Pali tradition has many, many terms for this. In English and in many other European languages, we, we are a little more poor when it comes to translating the many Indic language terms for the act of understanding, penetrating, uh, profoundly comprehending, fathoming, you know. It, we are a bit poor, we, we say. Uh, knowing, understanding, wisdom, and then it gets tougher. Yeah. Now the Indic languages, particularly Pali, has at least 20 of terms speaking to different types of knowing. I don't want to drag you into etymologies tonight, since meditators are supposed to make things simple and stay with their breath. <laughs> so, uh, however, it is important to understand that language affects how we think most profoundly. Footnote, careful. Papancha footnote. Uh, recent uh, video of a economist. Usually I don't watch videos of economists. Full disclosure here. And this guy has uh, done some interesting research on rather sizable data sets. And he's tried to establish a connection between the saving pattern of particular linguistic groups and the existence or the non-existence of a future tense in their language. And he's actually managed in some quite convincing ways, you know, as convincing as you can be in a 20-minute TED talk, uh, to establish a correlation between the propensity for people to save if their language does not construe semantically the future to be different from the present. So, because if the future is not semantically different from the present, then saving makes a lot more sense because you just keep continuing building on your present. Yeah? If the future is something distant and quite split off, then this is a lot more remote and why should you save for something that is so remote? You know, this is just a weird little example, but a language, for example, that insists on personal pronouns or that insists on uh, making nouns out of things. You know, like my native tongue does a lot of that. It reifies a lot of world by using a lot of nouns. English isn't quite as bad as German in this. That makes suddenly my world look a lot more reified a lot more, you know, bitty in some way. If I think about myself in terms of objects and bits, rather than in terms of processes and adjectives, and or maybe preferably even verbs, yeah, then my world seems to become more and more kind of chunked, yeah? I, I parse my world into some, somehow into bits, yeah? And these bits, they become strangely solid. So, the way we think has a profound effect on our perceptual apparatus. It has a profound effect on how, <clears throat> how we feel connected and how dynamic our picture of the world is and of ourselves. 
we notice that in many many times you know we get grades uh, that grade is still there even though i may have learned what i was missing when i did a bad grade the, the grade is in some way still there you know we can look at the old uh, whatever your grades are in when you go for off school yeah. uh, you you may get a diagnosis you know now <clears throat> If you have a cold, then a diagnosis is not such a stigmatic thing, you know. Nobody is going to hold it against you if, you if you were diagnosed with a common cold. Generally, people don't get an awful lot of mileage out of a diagnosis with a common cold. But if you have a, you know, if you have a cancer diagnosis or if you have been diagnosed with some psychiatric ailment, then those things are a lot more stigmatic. Now, you may not have that anymore. And yet still, you know, people know, will remember. You will know, will remember. So we, we keep being labeled, and our, our minds are full of such labels. The more we believe in the solidity of such label, the more our language reaffirms such label. The more our memory uh, fishes old labels out and warms them up, the more our world is a solidified pity and as we know, quite unrealistically so. Human beings change quite profoundly. The world of our senses is a process world. The world of our thinking is not a process world. The process of thinking hinges, completely depends on the fact that we Take little, put little frames, little perceptual frames over an essentially fluid process of experience, beginning with sensory impact. And those frames <coughs> formed a <coughs> the, the lacework, basically, of our cognitive patterns, then, of our thinking, of our associative process, of our conceptualization of ourselves, of the world. So it does make a difference what language you think in. If you think you have a self, even if you think this is a bad thing to have a self, you know, you're a good Buddhist, we don't have selves. So if you find a little bit of self in you, then you suddenly feel you need to eradicate that beast. You, know? you need to really clean up your act and get rid of it. So instead of, you know, naively believing in yourself, you become sort of a militant Buddhist and begin attacking yourself and eradicating yourself and tricking yourself out of, you know, derailing the thing. And in some way, this is an interesting experiment. It's a bit sort of muscular and... <laughs> and will probably produce some interesting insights, but basically you're still in the same position, you know. You, you think there is something you shouldn't have and you're still basically reifying the thing. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> if you switch on the light, you wouldn't expect that the, the light is going to fight the darkness, isn't it? And ferret out every corner of residual darkness and kill it wherever it meets it. You, know? <laughs> you wouldn't do that. You'd think you switch on the light and then where there is light, the darkness has receded. Yeah? It's gone. You don't need to kill the darkness. It has been replaced. Now, <clears throat> this would be a much smarter approach to yourself. Yeah? So, if you think of self not as a thing, 
you either like to have, and then you decide, no, it's better not to have it, or it's, it's wrong to have it, or, you know, Jack Holmfield doesn't have one, so I shouldn't have one, or the Buddha said, or, you know, if you think that way, then even though you may be in line with Buddhist doctrine, you're actually still caught by the, uh, the reification of such a self, which you now feel it is your task to rid yourself of. If you think of self as of a, a verb, well, then it's a lot easier. You know, The thing doesn't exist as long as you don't do it. If you're not selfing, it's not there. All you need to do is stop selfing or reduce selfing and suddenly the space increases. It's a very different relationship to the same problem, framed a little differently and suddenly go from your demon killer mode into a mode of, oh, actually, this self thing, actually, does it's painful. It's more painful than it looks like. I came about it because I thought it's going to help me, and now I find out it's actually going to hurt me. So if I can do it, I probably can undo it. How about if I did a little less of it, a little less selfing? And does it feel better? Yeah. And if it feels better, you do even a little less selfing. Yeah. So... It does make a difference how we think. And the third layer of the citta is that which is capable of profound understanding. That profound understanding is transformative. That's really the only transformative thing in our life. It is understanding. It's not your will. It's not your faith. It's not your energy. It's not your beliefs. It's not uh, the magic power of spouting the right sort of uh, creeds. It is understanding. Your heart lets go when it understands. So Buddhist traditions have always been interested in how, how to bring about understanding, how to maximize the mind's capacity, the chitta's capacity to understand. And they have uh, squarely come to the conclusion that one way to maximize that third capacity of the citta to understand more deeply um, is when it, the citta is not preoccupied with processing data input, sensory input. When it is not preoccupied with reacting to sensory input and trying to organize sensory input. In other words, the capacity of the mind to understand the third function of the citta is dramatically increased if it doesn't have to deal a lot with the first two functions. You know, after this little insight comes the invention of meditative practice. Yeah? It's very clear. This is what meditation in many ways tries to do. It tries to minimize the preoccupation of the citta with handling sense data, and with handling reactions towards sense data. It's not so that no sense data is the best condition. We know that. We're looking for comfort. You know? We're actually creating a lot of comfortable, a comfortable situation here. You know? This is, you're experiencing right now a comfortable situation. It's safe, it's warm, you're fed, uh, you have all individual lodgings, um, 
in terms of what most people on this planet experience, this is really comfortable. Yeah. And and yet, it's not luxurious, isn't it? We're not luxuriating here. We're trying to go for a degree of comfort and safety that enables us at the same time to be simple. And it is that mixture of reasonable comfort and simplicity that makes the mind most capable of deeply investigating, of learning its own patterning. That is important to know. The Buddha was very much criticized in his days for creating comfortable situations for his monks and himself. Although compared to, if you look at how these men and women lived in those days, um, to us this would feel rather ascetic. Yeah. But in the days of the Buddha, he was definitely at the soft end of the spectrum. He was accused of eating with rich people. He was accused that he and his monks would wear cloth, which woven cloth, which was a, uh, hard to come by in the days of the Buddha. He was accused of not doing really very ascetic practices by the standards of his day. Yeah. For us, maybe one meal a day would be ascetic and living with three robes and you know, moving around for large parts of the year and having very stringent ideas how big your hut is allowed to be and things like that, and uh, add a couple of other things. No sex, no TV, no gambling. Um, but in the day, in the views of his contemporaries, he was at the soft end of the spectrum. And he was quite adamant, having been an ascetic for a few years. He was also a spoiled uh, governor's kid, but he then practiced austerities uh, for quite some time. And he came to the conclusion that although there was something heroic in the practice of austerities, uh, something that strengthens the will and strengthens uh, the fearlessness in one's mind, that the austerity in itself was not liberating. I still have great respect for people who practice austerity. Not because austerities are intrinsically liberating, but it's difficult to practice austerities. And you're likely to learn something about you, yourself, when you practice austerities. When you sleep little, when you eat little, when you're uh, cutting back on your comfort zones. Yeah. You're very likely to learn a few crucial things, and most powerfully, you're very likely to become less fearful. You know, one of the things we pay our addiction to comfort with is fear. Yeah. Most of us, I don't know how it is for you, but most of us don't seem to be wildly, ecstatically indulgent or kind of abusively sensualists. But many, many of us sacrifice our freedom to comforts and safeties and little, you know, little padding zones. Yeah. And the amount of effort it takes to maintain those and to safeguard those and to finance those <laughs> yeah, seems to take so much of our energy. So the idea of simplicity, even not an ascetic simplicity, but a voluntary simplicity that meets the needs of the body and the mind and yet does not complicate or does not 
dissipate our mental energies so that these energies can be used and harnessed for an introspective task. This seems to be the balance I hear when I read and understand the Buddhist teaching. Yeah. And there's something timeless in this. Now, the Buddha was quite different in this approach from many of his contemporaries yeah, who felt quite different, who felt that either the world of the senses has to be affirmed And that meant in India, in the India of his day, this was the Brahminical or the Brahminical aspect of Vedic teaching, which uh, you had to accrue wealth and status in a society, have many kids, accumulate fortune, and then be generous with that and do the right rituals with that and put some of your fortune at the service of the larger community and particularly uh, dedicate some of it in forms of sacrifices to uh, you know your vedic pantheon whatever that uh, was and the, that the names of these deities have changed over the centuries a little bit but basically that was the pattern you know? and in the buddha was part of another movement and that movement felt we, our freedom does not come from obeying a cosmological order. Our freedom does come not from petitioning our gods. Our freedom does come from understanding something. It was a Gnostic ideal. So the Buddha and many of his contemporaries were engaging in forms of practice that increased their degree of understanding. So some of these traditions were about denying the body its needs and thus becoming less dependent. Others uh, were argumentative and they had particular rationale for a certain lifestyle. And in the Buddha's case, uh, he was interested in turning attention inward. So learning to use a function of the citta to understand the citta, to make it very simple. Yeah. Returning the light is the Chinese way of referring to this. Very beautiful image, isn't it? You return the light. So, And he comes very powerfully to the conclusion that the key to freedom, to contentment and to awakening lies in turning our attention in appropriate ways to the process of experiencing ourselves. And when doing that, he sees that we begin to understand how we are affected by senses, how we are affected by our wishes and expectations, and how we are affected by the fear that there is a discrepancy between those two. Gregory Bateson, a few years after the Buddha, um, uh, at one point tersely stated that most of what people suffer under is a little discrepancy between how the world, how the world works and how the mind thinks. Yeah. Uh, and in many ways that comes, to, that comes quite close. Yeah. Just so much of our pain so much of our discontent, so much of our um, experience of lack and dissatisfaction 
and loss comes from simply not understanding. That's the most powerful um, motor of suffering in our world is lack of clear understanding. And so uh, the meditation traditions have tried to heighten the mind's capacity to understand and have found ways to do this. One of them is the training of attention. Attention generally comes in two forms. One sort is involuntary, and it's the attention that is basically pulled out of us when we hear something reasonably sudden, reasonably loud, see something unforeseen, when we uh, feel something. We all know this. Involuntary attention is built in. We don't need to train this. We do that with little children. We try to catch their attention. We move a little bit. We make funny sounds. And then the big eyes kind of gradually turn over and look. You know? Long before they can focus, they kind of, we know, ah, we're on the screen now. Yeah, We're kind of registering. So this is what we're doing. We call some beings involuntary attention. Involuntary attention is very useful. It helps us survive, it is reliable, um, and it's, it's strong. Yeah? But it is not very trainable. And once it is not really in the, once it is not task-oriented, it is not focused on survival, or, then it quickly makes demands. It says, I'm here, what is on offer here, you know? What's, what's, what's up? You know, I'm here, kind of. Okay, where can I get something? It looks for gratification. It is needy. The more it has been satisfied, the more needy it seems to get. That's the strange thing about it. So involuntary attention always looks for gratification and always tries to minimize discomfort. This is a very simple and very time-honored principle. Find that way, way simple forms of life do this sort of thing. Yeah. Moving towards things that are nourishing, moving away from things that seem toxic is a characteristic of you know, very simple things. A couple of amino acids strong together already do this long before they do this oxygen number or complicated sexual sexuality or so, long before they do that, they have little flagellant, they kind of move over to where it's nice and move away from where it's not. And our mind is exactly the same. It, involuntary attention particularly is the instrument by which we try to heighten and maximize pleasant stuff, good stuff, gratifying stuff, and we try to not get the bad stuff. Bad stuff is always what makes us feel bad. Yeah, it's not. It's not yet moral. Attention operates like a baby. You know, good is what feels good, and bad is what feels bad. That's how we learn to orient ourselves. 
Now, this involuntary attention, as needed as it is for survival, it's quick. Yeah? When you do something dangerous, when something risky takes place, uh, when you find yourself confronted with something you couldn't have prepared for, then you will fall back onto your involuntary attention. You don't fall back onto studious reflection of the situation and meticulous decision-making trees, yeah? where you kind of work down your protocols. No, you fall back onto involuntary attention. If you just happen to so have locked yourself into the same loo with a cobra and you're in your Asia trip or so, and then you will fall back onto your involuntary attention and weigh your chances very quickly and decide how to act. And then you either survive the experience and tell the story, or you don't survive the experience. And your deplorably lacking involuntary attention will find its evolutionary end then and there. Yeah? Your unsuccessful strand of <laughs> involuntary attention building will not really be passed on much further. So contemplative traditions have always tried to focus on the voluntary attention. Yeah. Now, voluntary attention is a dramatic thing because it's something we can choose. It's something we can bestow. It's something we can give. It's something we can direct. Something we can bundle. Something we can focus. That's the big word. Yeah. Voluntary attention is a lot less dramatic. It takes energy. It takes sustenance. Yeah. If you've ever tried to teach a child a skill it hasn't learned, and a skill it may not understand why this is needed. Why should I learn to play the violin, mommy? Yeah? Why, do I, why do I really need to satisfy your ambition to make a musician out of me, yeah? when I just want to go and play in the sand pit? Or why do I need to tie my shoelaces? Or why should I do writing? Or things like that. Whenever you have tried to teach someone who does not have a skill and does not know why he or she should learn the skill, then you'll know to focus this being's attention on that task is quite a challenge. You may need to trick them. You may need to incite them. You may need to uh, give treats. You may need to <coughs> threaten consequences. Yeah. You may resort to very old stuff, inciting fears. Yeah? Or you may try to motivate, and that's the most sustainable one. You may try to motivate a little being so that it finds joy and finds the knack in that skill and starts to take an interest in developing that skill off its own steam, so to say. Yeah? It it develops an interest, and then you don't have to do the pushing anymore. So, this is the task we have to develop voluntary attention. It is generally something we need to learn, we need to train, we need to put in effort. And voluntary attention is difficult because it doesn't is, it's not fun. Yeah? It doesn't immediately gratify. It doesn't immediately stop something unpleasant happening. In fact, it can feel unpleasant to apply voluntary attention. Even though the actual experience may not be unpleasant, but the act of putting in effort may be unpleasant. 
Also, it goes against my habits. That's why meditation is difficult. It's not intrinsically difficult to feel my breath. It's not a really particularly revolting, revolting experience feeling my breath. But it goes against my habit of seeking gratification, preferably immediate gratification. Because I just feel a breath. Yeah? And there is no wild immediate gratification there. Yeah. So as soon as I try to studiously put my effort to a task that doesn't immediately gratify me, something in me starts moping, something in me starts sulking, something in me starts saying, how long do I have to do this? You know, what do I get out of this? Isn't this a bit strenuous? We could do so many other things. I have so many fantastic thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you? Yeah. And it's difficult. Yeah. And you're true, you know, true. You could think of all kinds of morally fairly blameless thoughts. And yet they are actually disruptive to your practice of calm. So voluntary attention has always been praised by the contemplative traditions. And it is the training of voluntary attention that is basically the, the bedrock of meditative training. We learn to acknowledge attention and we give it an intentional direction. Yeah. That's why it is important to acknowledge intention. If you're not aware of what you intend, A, you are likely to be very ineffective in your doings, or B, you may be just driven by impulses which you do not acknowledge, that basically organize your behavior. Yeah. So that's why it is important to know your intentions, even if they're bad intentions. Yeah. Even if they're downright nasty, spiteful, you know, vengeance, full of vengeance and all this, it's better to know your intentions. If you do not know your intentions, you're more likely to actually enact them. You're more likely to lose time. If you look for happiness, contentment, awakening, freedom, you have a better chance if you have some idea in which direction this goes. Even if you find out later that these were wrong ideas, you're better off than not having any ideas. Most of your ideas will be wrong ideas. Any idea of awakening and freedom, unless you're awakened and free, will be wrong, by definition. Yeah. Any notion of freedom, awakening, Nibbana is, uh, per definitionem, uh, wrong or misleading or inco incomplete, simply because you cannot cognitively know something you haven't experientially realized. Yeah, very simple. However, you know, um, even a bad idea may get you going. Many of my ideas about meditation, in fact, literally all of my ideas about meditation and Buddhism were uh, completely wrong. And yet they got me training 35 years ago. Everything that inspired me then just makes me cringe nowadays. Yeah, <laughs> And yet that was not the purpose, you know. It's, it's my ideas about Buddhism, or particularly Zen practice in those days, was they're irrelevant today. What was relevant is that they motivated me then to take up a practice that has moved me through various incarnations of shifting my understanding. And that at every one stage, there was enough motivation there to continue in some way a path. That is the important bit. 
So the absolute rightness of your ideas or your understanding is, I think it's negligible. You have, there's a couple of things which preferably you should avoid, but it's not so much getting it right. It's making sure that you're staying out of the worst sort of patterns. So we all tell ourselves stories. You know, the mind is a storyteller and we need to tell ourselves good stories, stories in which things are possible. That's an important one. And we learn to make good stories. If we have to tell ourselves stories, let us tell ourselves good stories. Stories in which things are possible. Stories in which we can understand. Stories in which investigation brings fruit and shows possibilities. I would like you to give yourself credit for training your mind in its capacity to intentionally, intentionally focus on something you have chosen as an exercise. You may think of yourself as just sitting here and you wonder why you're tired in the evening when you sit here and you're not doing much, you're not lifting much weight, you're not doing hard work, you're not chopping trees or building houses, or you're not whittling down your inboxes or yeah you you're just sitting here and one of the things that takes energy is affirming an intention and steadying an attention rather than going to the drift of involuntary attention which moves away from unpleasant and toward the pleasant continually across our sense fields simply to holding an attentional focus on the breathing process or on my feet or on a question is hard work if we do that more than just a little impulse. If we try to sustain attention, this tends to be hard work because it goes against the grain, against the current of our involuntary attention. Think of swimming in a stream. As long as you swim with the stream, it doesn't seem very powerful, isn't it? The real power of that stream you only notice when you turn your chest against the stream and you're trying to stay on the spot. Only then you actually feel the current pulling. Only then you see how much is pulling away. So practice clarifying to yourself your intentions, sampling your intentions. You have a say. As soon as you sample your intentions, you have a say. Which one you consent to, which one you want to give energy, which one you enact, and which ones you just, you know, for the gods <laughs> behind. This is a capacity of freedom we have, but we need to, exer we need to exercise it. Yeah. Habit is our greatest... Um, Unconscious habits are our greatest enemies. Conscious habits are our friend. So it's not just habit alone that is the enemy. It's the conscious habit that is our friend and it's the unconscious habit that may be our enemy. Yeah. Consider this and the capacity of your mind to understand at any moment in your life, at any moment, that which you feel needs resolving will be looking at you straight from where you see the problem. It looks straight back at you. Think of 
your mind is being capable of understanding what your mind frames as the problem. If you frame that problem a little different, and you'll see where the problem was, a profound degree of understanding that makes transformation possible. And letting go possible. And contentment possible. And joy possible. Yeah. Let me end here tonight. Um, good, let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.